This is Steve Goodrich, known on the trail as Bird Shooter, and this is N2 Backpacking, a podcast for both hikers and backpackers. Hello hikers, Bird Shooter here, and tonight I'm with Rich, Mark, and Aaron from the ADK Winter Mountaineering School. On the show this evening, they tell us about the ADK program, including advice on what to uh, take on a winter expedition, Uh, we'll get some winter backpacking tips, and learn how to prepare for a winter trip into the backcountry. This is episode number 50 of Milestone in the N2 Backpacking Podcast. And if you like the show, we are now live on Patreon. You'll uh, gain access to earlier shows and get exclusive trip reports, photos, and videos. Plus, some great karma may come your way. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash N2 Backpacking. Or visit our website for more information. Also, be on the lookout for shows 51 and 52, which I have already recorded. I interviewed 3Dub about his recent Appalachian Trail through hike in 51, and spent some time with Rudy of the Cascade Hiker podcast in number 52. So lots more on the way, but for now, here's my interview with the ADK Winter Mountaineering School. All right, this is Bird Shooter, and I'd like to welcome Rich, Mark, and Aaron to the show from the ADK Winter Mountaineering School. Tonight they're uh, going to give us some winter backpacking tips, educate us on uh, cold weather gear, and share some interesting winter backpacking ventures with us. Fellas, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, Steve. So, Rich, let me start with you. Um, t- tell us a little bit about the ADK winter mountaineering school i did i did look over your website i just want to tell you before you you uh give the listeners some information i was very impressed with the free materials that you provided on the site i learned a lot by going through them but tell us a little bit about the school so the um the school was established in 1954 um certainly long before my tenure with uh wms uh, and the story that I've heard is that uh, it was formed by uh, pre- and post-World War II climbers from the 10th Mountain Division. Um, and throughout the 1950s and 60s, uh, they started developing what was to become known as the quote-unquote Adirondack School of uh, Winter Climbing. Uh, and a lot, of their, a lot of what they were doing was based on techniques and equipment that uh, was developed by and for the military uh, for alpine combat. Um, as far as the, the modern-day mission of Winter Mountaineering School, um, I think the, um, when you boil it down, uh, our mission is to take uh, three-season hikers and backpackers uh, and bring them into what I like to call the best season. Uh, into uh, in, into the winter time, and uh, and get and get them out there um, when the trails are a little less crowded and there's no mud, and no bugs, and, and teach them how to do it safe and, uh, and have a good time out there. Yeah, and I and I you know I live in the south. And Rich, was it you that said you were in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, right now? 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, my, my favorite time to hike is actually in the winter in the south because there isn't a lot of bugs. There's relatively, you know, limited humidity. It's by far my favorite time to backpack. So uh, anyway, I was excited to have a chance to talk to you guys. Now, I take it ADK, and Mark, maybe you can take this one. ADK stands for Adir- Adirondack, is that right? Adirondack Mountain Club, yeah, and the, the abbreviation is ADK. Um, not exactly sure how that came to be, but uh, yes, ADK is the shorthand for the Adirondack Mountain Club, not to be confused with the Appalachian Mountain Club or the AMC. So, right, right. Uh, distinct organizations uh, with, with, with similar but, uh, but different storied histories. Yeah, yeah, and maybe you can elaborate on that a second, Mark, because the AMC, it sounds like you guys do some uh, activities in conjunction with them. How, how does that relationship work? Well, it's, it, that's actually an interesting story because um, uh, once upon a time when I was a student, in fact, the program was co-sponsored by both the ADK and the AMC. It was the ADK AMC Winter Mountaineering School. There are still a few legacy t-shirts that say that on them um but and that was back in the late 90s um and i like to say due to uh clerical and uh risk management issues uh, the clubs decided that it was best to divide the schools up and the amc section of our school kind of withered on the vine due to not quite being able to find a way to fit into the uh, to the AMC, but the ADK uh, maintained its support and is our now our primary sponsoring organization. That said, um, as Rich, uh, Rich and I discussed sort of offline, there is a, a program that the AMC runs called the Mountain Leadership School, and we share several instructors um, with that school. In fact, I've been an instructor with that school, and um, it is actually a descendant of a section of the Winter Mountaineering School called the A School, which was the advanced school, which taught leadership issues and stuff like that in the wintertime. And um, so that kind of carries on over there on the AMC side as Mountain Leadership School. We focus primarily, not exclusively, but primarily on what we call hard skills. So how to use a compass and, you know, how to plan a trip and how to use ice axe and how to use crampons. Um, Mountain Leadership School is actually a lot more into the uh, leadership experience and the group dynamic. So they they address the soft skill side of what makes an uh, you know a good uh, outdoor leader. Okay. Uh, have I answered your question? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, and Mark and Aaron, you guys are, are both up north, I believe, at least right now. Uh, and maybe Aaron, I'll let you take this next one. In terms of activities, I saw you guys do hiking, backpacking. It looked like you did some ice climbing. Um, what what sort of activities do you guys focus on as a club? So from the from a um, the Adirondack Mountain Club, they have chapters all over New York State and New Jersey, and they do everything from bicycling to cross country skiing, snowshoeing, uh, and various other things. We're a we're a portion of that club. Um, we're kind of a uh, we're kind of a uh, sub uh, sub subcommittee of that, and. We mostly just focus on the uh, on uh, developing mountaineering skills for the instructors and um, helping people be safe in the wilderness. Okay, that's one of the that's one of our big missions. Gotcha. And I did see that you had a lot of classes that you guys teach. Uh, what what are some of the most popular ones, uh, Aaron? So um, we have we have a couple of different sections, and it and it kind of varies during during different years. 
So we have our uh, weekend um, backpacking section, which um, focuses on um, going out uh, and spending two nights in the woods uh, in a tent, uh, depending on the uh, the temperatures. It can get it can get as low as negative uh, thirty, negative forty during the during the class. Oh. Um, and uh, yeah, exactly. Um, we also we also have a um, weekend day hike section, which what that does is um, you go out and hike in that weather, but you come back to the Adirondack Lodge, which is a, um, a beautiful storied lodge, uh, kind of like some of the AMC lodges or some of the, some of the lodges you might find in the Smoky Mountains. So you go back to a heated lodge with a with a nice bed and a nice pillow uh, at night, but you get to uh, you get to experience above tree line. Uh, you get to um, try out all the gear that you that you that you're using. Switch between snowshoes and crampons. Really get those ice axe and crampon skills uh, going. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and yeah. Then we have uh, our combo section. We have our combo section, which is a combination of the weekend uh, the weekend uh, day hike section, and then we spend uh, then we spend another uh, another two nights out in the woods. Um, three so three it, nights. So yeah. a, three nights. I'm sorry. Three nights. Excuse me. So it's, um, yeah. so it's, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Mark. Um, it's, it uh, allows you to get the day hikes in, uh, uh, develop some of those skills, and then you spend three nights out in the woods um, uh, really really testing those skills. So it's, it's one of the best values that's out there also uh, because if you, I don't know if you've looked at the cost of our program, uh, but our program is, uh, you know, right around the four or $500 mark uh, for, for those. And if you look at uh, doing those through a professional guide, uh, program or in most most of the other programs, um, they're uh, they're pretty pricey. Yeah, and I understand you guys are a nonprofit. Um, and Rich, maybe a question for you: You guys must that money must go to paying your instructors. Is that correct? Uh, no, uh, we are, You're correct in that we are a uh, a five hundred one c three c educational nonprofit organization. Um, and within that structure, all of our instructors and advisory board members are complete 100% volunteers. Okay. And so, so that money goes to uh, just supplies, food, and, and things that are needed on the trip, typically? It's the overhead cost of the program. So the, uh, the lodging and the meals uh, through the Adirondack Mountain Club. Uh, so, yeah, all of your front country lodging and all of your front country food is included in the price of the program. Uh, so there's really no, uh, that's the only overhead to speak of, and that's basically what the students are paying for. Uh, we call it the weekend day hike and the weekend backpack, but in reality it spans over four days. The program is currently running from Thursday morning through Sunday afternoon uh, for the quote-unquote weekend programs. Uh, so you're averaging $100 a day, and your, your, your lodging and your food is, is largely included. Um, so that's really where all the money is going. So basically, once you get to the trailhead, or at least where you guys are meeting up, everything you're, everything's pretty much covered, right? Yeah, more or less. I mean, for the backcountry trips, uh, you know, students are providing their own uh, you know, dehydrated meals and things like that. Uh, and trail lunches and, and snacks and stuff like that. Uh, but like I said, all the front country stuff is included. 
Okay. And you know, one thing I thought that was really interesting as I was reading some of your materials, and, and again, I, I thought your materials were excellent, especially some of the tips you had just for winter backpacking. Um, Rich, maybe a question for you. Um, so I understand that you have to apply, which means to me you don't take everyone. Um, is there an age requirement? Like, how do you decide who is uh, has the skills, maybe has the attitude and is old enough? I guess to how do you decide who you're going to take on a trip? Maybe that's the way I should phrase the question. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, there, there certainly is an application process, um, and our application, the information that we try to capture about potential students, uh, focuses a lot on fitness and on their kind their three season backpacking and hiking experience as well as any prior uh, winter uh, hiking and climbing experience they might have. Uh, so as far as selecting students, uh, you know, once there's an applicant, we try to steer them to the program that's probably best for them. Um, I will say that we've taken rank beginners out, and a lot of our first-time students are people who have been uh, recreating in the winter in the Northeast for many, many years and just want to, you know, dial in their skills a little bit better or have partners to hike with. Uh, so our applicant pool uh, really does run a pretty wide range of students. Uh, and when and then it's, it's our job as instructors to kind of uh, go through these applications and eventually do one-on-one interviews with students to form groups that are, you know, going to be roughly uh, performance and ability-wise equivalent within the group. And then, you know, we go out and whatever the group is, we, uh, we make sure that they get the experience and the learning that's right for them. Yeah, I mean, obviously you want to set them up for success, and part of that is putting the right people together, so I definitely get that. Is there a minimum level of fitness that you would need for some of your intro trips? I don't think anybody has ever gone through Winter Mountaineering School and said, man, I was just too fit for that. (laughs) Um, The the schedule is pretty hectic. so it's kind of go, go, go all the time, but we do try to get and be outside as much as possible. Um, we've got some rough fitness guidelines uh, in some of our materials. I mean, from, from, from my standpoint personally, if you can go, if, if, if a person can go out and consistently make or beat uh, the quote-unquote book time um, on hikes in the, in the Adirondacks and in the White Mountains, like, you're probably pretty good. Uh, okay. You know, if you can run, you know, three miles at a 10-minute-per-mile pace, that's probably a good, good, solid level of fitness for this kind of stuff. Okay. Well, that's a good, uh, sort of a good benchmark there. Mark, you want to talk uh, just about where you primarily operate your trips? I mean, do I understand they're mostly in the Northeast, or do you hold, do you hold these events elsewhere? So uh, our, our school is pretty much uh, primarily run in uh, the Adirondacks of upstate New York, um, which are uh, north of the uh, north of the capital district, north of the capital Albany. 
Um, so between, say, the Mohawk River and the Canadian border is broadly the Adirondack region. And more specifically, we run the trips mostly in the high peaks of the Adirondacks, which is the central and highest terrain in the high peaks. Um, the Adirondack Lodge is located south of Lake Placid, and uh, that is sort of where the base camp is for the Adirondack section. Um, we are running, for the first time in many, 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 many years, a White Mountain section, which is going to run out of Crawford Notch in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Okay. Um, but yes, we're, we're primarily, uh, in terms of the school, we are focused in the Northeast. Um, people who have come through the school have gone on to climb um, in Alaska, the Northwest, and uh, I think someone on the phone call here has been to South America climbing, and uh, I personally have... Uh, was lucky enough to do a little uh, high altitude adventure in Africa. So um, ah, nice. Um, we 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 like to give people skills that then can allow them to go on to uh, bigger mountain projects if that's what their ambition is. Um, though that's not, you know, that's not uh, required or expected. Uh, it's always nice to see people who have come through the program go on hone their skills and then go off to other parts of the world. So sure. Um, but yes. So, uh, Aaron, I'll, I'll give this question to you. Maybe we'll shift gears a little bit and zero in on winter backpacking, since this is a uh, backpacking podcast. But um, uh, well, what's the coldest night that you've ever spent in the wilderness? I heard negative thirty. I've heard negative negative thirty and negative forty thrown out before. So you guys have definitely been out there in some cold weather. Yeah, negative negative thirty is my is my personal. Uh, is my personal lowest that I've camped to. Oh. That gets that gets a little little bit entertaining, uh, and that's definitely in a tent, you know, um, with no fire and that kind of stuff. Um, just uh, to go back to the program for just a second, um, uh, we get we get um, also a, probably twenty or thirty percent of our enrollment is uh, uh, previous students, and some students have come back for like ten years. Okay. So we get we get a we get a we get a good um, we get a good mix of people who have been in the program before and people who are uh, brand new to the program also. And we get a lot of people who cycle through the program. They start out in the day hikes and they go through um, to the combo section or to the weekend backpacking section or an advanced uh, backpack that we also do. Okay. Yeah, I saw. I think I saw somewhere that a lot of your students have gone on to write. Uh, Winter mountaineering books and um, various guidebooks for winter hiking, which I thought was interesting. But it, you said something that does make me um, wonder, and that is about fires. So how often are you guys able to actually have a, a campfire on these trips? Because I would think that would be a so the high, good thing. Yeah, the, the, high, the, high peaks, the high peaks of the Adirondacks do not allow fires. Mm. So you're not allowed to have fires in any of the, any of the seasons. Um, and they do that because the um, amount of uh, people that are up there, the pressure, right. and the um, hygiene that people have uh, doesn't 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 lend to that. So they they ban fires in the in the region. But even even if you could have a fire in the winter, when it's that cold, it's not a reliable source of heat. You've really got to have the right equipment um, and make sure that you're using your layering processes correctly and uh, you know that you're that you're using all all of your uh, all of your skills correctly. Yeah, well, I guess um, trying yeah. to trying to find firewood would be a challenge too, right? Because it's all probably buried under snow. Yes, but, but potentially it's under a couple feet of snow. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. <laughs> the other thing I, I that I would say about this is Mark 
uh, I would say about fires is they're a great way to burn holes in your really expensive uh, and fancy outdoor gear. That's uh, in the wintertime, I think of just getting holes burned in my Gore-Tex and my down pants and things like ah. that if I was standing around a fire. So, M Mark, I have done that. I've done that myself. I concur with your statement. <laughs> yeah. Mark, so let me hit you with the next question, Mark. Have you guys ever been stuck or stranded because you got into, uh, you know, like a major storm on one of these events? I mean, I'm sure you're watching the weather, but I'm sure there's there's been times you've yeah. just sort of been tricked by the weather. Um, well, we, we do we do keep an eye on the weather. Of course, uh, out in the field, um, oftentimes the weather changes pretty rapidly, and uh, in the Adirondacks, um, it's not always a sure thing that you're going to be able to, uh, you know, check in with Weather Underground on your on your uh, smartphone. Right. Uh, we uh, several years back, I led a section. We were out during one of these nor'easters, um, and uh, we had a fine time. And uh, you know, uh, we uh, we climbed a mountain in it and uh, had a nice camp out and uh, came back in. And you know, it was snowmageddon to the rest of the world. But of course, we were, you know, dressed for it and ready for it. Um, it was it was kind of a drag breaking trail, you know, on the way out, which <laughs> which is a bit of a drag when you kind of think you're going to coast out to the car and you have to break trail the whole way. Right. But um, yeah, that was a that was a pretty classic nor'easter. So I don't I don't think we've ever been uh, you know hammered down to the point where we are immobile. And uh, but that speaks to the point that uh, there are days when it's just not a good idea to go up high. And when it's not a good idea to go up high, we don't go up high. Um, you do need to be careful in the northeast above treeline. In the Adirondacks a little bit, and especially in the White Mountains, um, uh, navigating in a whiteout uh, above treeline is, is uh, no mean feat and not to be undertaken lightly. Yeah. So uh, we well, teach, you know, teach things like taking a compass bearing from, from treeline to the summit on even, even a nice day. Because people have been people have been soft in on the summit of both Algonquin and Marcy, and not known which side of the mountain they came up in a whiteout. So, those are the kind of skills we try to try to teach to you know keep people safe. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, there are days when definitely the weather is the weather's not your friend. And I, I, I my my personal sort of saying is that cold is not necessarily your enemy. That the wet is often your enemy. I, I'd rather be out in five or fifteen below than thirty-five degrees in rain. Um, yeah, you know. And I think uh, that that pre presents a, a greater challenge. I've, I've been out in both and, and had a fine time in both, but I think it's easier to manage yourself, your gear, and everything uh, when it's cold and dry as opposed to 30 degrees and wet. Agreed. Kind of so, so, I mean, if you guys are hiking above treeline, you, you're obviously taking the wind into consideration, too. That can, be a, that can be a major factor on your trip, too, I would expect, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had, we had I think, last year... Um, the the four thousand footer summit day over the weekend um, conditions up high were just not conducive. So the the groups that were headed to uh, Algonquin that day uh, got to treeline, took a little foray up into the wind and the poor visibility, and said, "Yeah, see, this would be real fun. Let's turn around and go home." So they <laughs> they wow. didn't get the summit that day, and everybody was just just as happy to come back uh, having experienced that. But you, you can literally be blown around uh, by the wind up there. Uh, I can imagine. Sure. I, you can that can happen in the summer, right? Let alone the winter. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Totally. So, so Rich, maybe I'll come back to you. Um, 
uh, you have a, a, one of the craziest things that's ever happened to you on one of these trips. I'm sure, you know, as much as you plan and prepare and even with all your experience, that there's things just sometimes don't go your way, right? Uh, just cu- curious if you got a good story there. Um, me personally, I mean, uh, I think, uh, you know, one year uh, we went out with the team and uh, it was – it was a pretty much a, a hodgepodge of, uh, of students. We had some that were kind of low fitness, some that weren't really dialed in gear-wise. Uh, we had to keep rejiggering the, uh, the groups and stuff to, to kind of meet their needs. I mean, to me personally, that was a little bit more disappointing rather than crazy, uh, but just kind of like dealing with that constant chaos of moving things around, uh, I guess, sort of qualifies. But uh, as far as like objective hazards like on the trail and things like that um no i don't uh i don't recall having any uh any big standouts uh you know we try to prepare as best we can and uh and we're not afraid to say you know this isn't going to go today you know like mark said sometimes you get the tree line and today's just not the right day for it um so we really try to stay away from uh, from having uh, these epic uh, bivouacs or, uh, or or you know campfire stories. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if, if it was maybe the three of you guys, uh, you, you might tackle something a little differently. But when you have students, you obviously have to probably err on the cautious side, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah. So a question maybe, and we'll, we'll hit each one of you up one one by one. We'll start with you, Rich. Do you guys? I know that you do a lot of backpacking in New York. Um, do you have a favorite place that you like to go, and maybe outside of New York? Rich, you want to take it first? Sure, sure. Um, I've, I've been lucky enough to do a little bit of backpacking out west. Um, I guess that's kind of my default, like, wow, this is really different, this is really cool, because you know, I kind of cut my teeth in the Adirondacks uh, growing up. Uh, you know, and then I, I went out west, and you know the, the trails are graded a lot nicer, and there's views everywhere. Um, but I, I, I kind of think, like deep down inside, that's just kind of an aspect of it being like new and different and unfamiliar to me. Because whenever I come back to the East Coast, uh, you know, I just kind of really appreciate you know the, the, the woods and the trails that we had. Uh, so like, it's just always a, a grass is greener kind of. Yeah, yeah. Aaron, how about you? Do you have a favorite place? Well, um, for for non winter uh, for non winter backpacking, uh, my favorite place is to do a loop called the West Canada Lakes Loop, and that's uh, kind of above Syracuse, New York, near Speculator, New York. Okay. It's a twenty five mile it's twenty five mile loop. It pops between a bunch of really nice lakes that uh, have some browns in them, and you can do some fishing in. Uh, it's on the uh, Northville uh, Lake Placid Trail, or at least it uses a portion of that. But it's a good it's a good three day backpack, and I'm actually uh, leading a trip in May for the local for the local club uh, up there to do that. So and, and you get you guys one of my that is just one of my favorite uh, uh, classic classic backpacking trips. In, in May, do you guys the snow's typically gone? I would imagine by May for for that area, correct? Most of the time. I mean, I guess if you get up really high, but um, yeah, okay, that that would yeah, be my guess. At about at about three thousand feet, you'll probably still have snow in May, but the place that I'm talking about is much below that. 
Gotcha. Okay. And, and Mark, any areas you particularly like? Well, I, I've gotten to do a little bit out west. Um, did a, an attempt on Rainier, which was which was really a highlight uh, from a mountaineering perspective. And then uh, we successfully climbed Mount Adams out there in Washington State, which was fun. And I, I did get to climb uh, Kilimanjaro in in Africa because I was there on work and uh, just happened to have a window to be able to get away and do it. So that was awesome. That's in terms cool. of high altitude. That's my that's my sort of high water mark. But I would say in terms of places in the Adirondacks proper, there's a, a little shoulder of uh, Gothic's Peak called Pyramid Peak, which doesn't count as its own high peak because it's too close to, to Gothic's. But the, uh, the views from the summit of Pyramid um, and sort of the remoteness of that spot, I think that's my, that's my favorite spot in the Adirondacks. It's just uh, the view is not to be believed. It, uh, if you haven't been there, you should get there because it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Now, Mark, was it you that was in South America? I wouldn't. I can't recall who said they had done some trips there. No, that was that was that was Rich. Rich did oh. the trip to yep. South America. Gotcha. Do you got do you, Rich? Do you have some favorite international trips uh, that you sh you want to share? Um, that certainly was a, a high mark for me. Uh, yeah, I went down to uh, the the, uh, the Andes in Peru. Uh, with uh, the School for International Expedition Training in the summer of 2007, so just last summer. Um, yeah, SIET, or SEAT, uh, as they call it, uh, is kind of like uh, winter mountaineering school, but technical, high alpine, um, proper alpinism. Um, they're also a nonprofit, very educational, driven, um, and we went down and we, uh, we caught, we climbed, uh, in one of the valley out of one of the valleys out there, set up base camp for about three weeks, uh, climbed on three different mountains. Somebody twice, I think our high mark was just shy of 6,000 meters. So like 20,000 feet change. Um, so over that, you know, three weeks or a month, you know, just learned a tremendous, tremendous amount of new skills, new techniques, new risk management strategies, uh, all sorts of stuff that I'm now using in my personal trips and and also at Winter Mountain Area School. Okay. Awesome. I've always wanted to get down to South America. I had two buddies that I just interviewed in a recent podcast, and it was summer for them, and they weren't doing mountaineering like you were, but um, they, they had wonderful things to say about Peru and Machu Picchu and um, in that area, but very different than the, the kind of hiking you guys do. So I won't even try to put them in the same uh, class there. Um, so could, I, I really wanted to talk about gear a little bit because um, winter gear is so different than, you know, your regular three season gear. Um, and maybe Mark will come to you on this one. Um, what, I mean, when you guys go out on these trips, what is a typical pack weight? Because, you know, I'm thinking 30 to 40, maybe 50 tops for my typical backpacking trips, but I got to believe that you're definitely over 50 on, on these, uh, cold weather overnights, especially multi-day. If you'd asked me, uh, you know, 10 years ago before I passed the, the 50 mark and my knees began to whine at me, um, I would have said probably 55 to 70 pounds. Okay. I've, I've tried, I've tried to winnow that down. It is difficult to get a, a winter pack much below 50 pounds you know, all in with food and stuff like that, because um, there's a certain amount of gear that you just kind of have to carry, um, even if you're out for two nights 
quality right. route for five nights. Um, I taught up uh, the advanced section several years back. We did a five-night backpack, and I, I'm ashamed to say that the backpacks were all north of 70 pounds. So that was a that was a that was a rough hike in for the first day, and uh, we all ate like you know like pigs for the first two days. <laughs> you earned <laughs> it. Get our, our, <laughs> our loads down. Um, and, and I, you know, I think uh, if, from my own perspective, I've, I've been at that, that food weight down quite a bit from what it was uh, 10 years ago. My appetite isn't what it once used to be, but also I, I got tired of coming back in with, you know, half a bag of gorp still left. So I've, I've been able to dial that in quite a bit. And so I'm, I'm, I'm still north of 50 pounds with my winter pack, but uh, I have gotten it down quite a bit. Um, we've also introduced um, pulks into our into our technology to teach people. We don't require them, and we usually don't do a full section with them. But instructors often pull them so people can figure out um, what it's like to have that weight not on your back, but floating along the snow behind you. All uh, right. And in the right terrain, in the right terrain, it's great. In the wrong terrain or in the wrong conditions, it's hell, hell on two, hell on two ski poles. So, um, so I wouldn't recommend it in as as a you know as a universal solution to the the pack waste, but in the right place, going to the right you know to the right destination, it can be a great way to save your save your back and your knees. Yeah, and Mark, yeah, you mentioned have, we do have some instructors. We do have some instructors that have uh, uh, basically uh, spent a lot of uh, money, and they they've got their packs down to uh, sub thirty pounds. Wow. Uh, for yeah, that's the impressive. Amount of Al the amount of the amount of Alterix and other uh, very high end gear that's in their packs is uh, uh, very very spendy. Right, right. And, and yeah. Mark mentioned yeah. you mentioned obviously dehydrated meals. Uh, I know we we do, and you guys would laugh at what we call a Klondike down here. But you know we have a Klondike hike that I do with some buddies. We've been doing it since 96, where we go out every winter in the middle of the winter and try to get into snow somewhere down here, which isn't always easy. But a lot of times we'll take the um, mountain house or the dehydrated foods because when it's really cold, it's kind of nice just to boil water and add it and be done. Do you guys typically, on your trips, and, and Aaron, maybe I'll let you take this one, do you guys typically do dehydrated meals or do you actually do more um, elaborate meals on your on your winter trips? Yeah, the during the during the winter trips, you really want the uh, uh, boil and eat out of the bag kind of a kind of a situation. You want to get those calories in, and you don't want to be cooking um, on a stove. You want to be boiling water. Right. So a lot of the students we use uh, commercial meals. Um, so they'll get the Mountain House or um, one of the local um, local guys uh, in the Adirondacks. Uh, he he has a he has a site called Hawk Vittles, which he makes. Uh, he makes some really good stuff that uh, that some of the students have used also, um, but uh, most of most of the instructors use uh, freezer bag cooking um, okay. methodologies, and we dehydrate our own stuff um, or or use commercial or use a commercial uh, type of situation. But right. we we boil water we boil water in the in the mornings we boil water in the evenings, and then during the uh, the rest of the time we're eating lunch. Right. Which starts right after breakfast. <laughs> and do you, you guys, I mean, I mean, do you typically throw up like a a Kelty tarp or something for your kind of cooking area, or do you just you're just out there? I mean, if it's windy, if it's snowing, you're just out there cooking. How, how do you usually deal with that? 
Now we'll 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 put together a snow kitchen. We use we often have uh, snow depth, so you can actually make uh, uh, Barco lounger chairs. You can make a couch. Okay. Uh, you can make a nice nice uh, nice. Uh, nice uh, cabinet to uh, put the stoves on and then we'll put a tarp up over the stoves because as the snow comes down that can get uh, that can make the whisper light stoves uh, kind of grumpy as they get wet so right. we like to have a, a protected area and we like to have a nice place to sit down and have and have meals so you know we depending on the snow depth we're out there with uh, avalanche shovels making uh, quite the elaborate uh, pieces of furniture yeah now are the whisper lights and I when I threw hike the Appalachian Trail the whisper lights were the rage, right? And then over the years, you know, people started using pocket rockets and other things. But are they still are they still the go-to stove for you guys in the winter? Absolutely. The uh, the white gas is the most efficient um, most efficient fuel for really low temperatures. Okay. And make fuel canisters work um, in low temperatures, but it's a lot of uh, it's very very fiddly. You got to keep the canister in your jacket, yeah. heat it up. And you uh, got to put okay. it in a pan of warm water and keep that going. Um, you just you don't get the pressure out of it. So, so the the pressurized white gas. So we all we all try to we all try to use the same version of the Whisper Light, so that we can uh, interchange parts and fix stuff in the field. Because when it gets to, you know, negative ten, negative twenty, those uh, those stoves get a little persnickety. Yeah, those those things are bulletproof, and I love to hear that the Whisper Light is still. Uh... You know, it's still got its place because I felt like the times had kind of passed it by. I didn't didn't know until you just educated me how valuable they were in in cold conditions. Um, hey, so Rich, I'm going to shift back to you, and I just wanted to ask a little bit about sort of your sleeping situation. You know, tents, uh, sleeping pads, and bags. Um, I, I think I saw that you guys try to recommend a negative 20 rating or lower. Um, are, are most people? Also, adding a bag liner to that, or does it just depend on the, the conditions? Yeah, so so you're right. The the, the minus twenty F bag is super good at uh, at winter school. Uh, you know, especially when you're combining that with four season tent, uh, that will will keep you warm in, in most of the conditions we'll see up there. Uh, as far as the bag liners, uh, you know. If you've got kind of a marginal bag, like you've got maybe like a minus 10 bag or even like a zero bag, you know, a liner can maybe buy you that extra 10 or 15 degrees uh, that you need for as far as the warmth is concerned, you know, like a silk liner or a fleece liner. Uh, and uh, I know some folks will also use the vapor barrier liners for their sleeping bags with the down sleeping bags. Uh we don't. I don't see. I don't think we see too many people using. It. I don't know if any of the instructors use it. I don't think I've ever seen any students use it either. Um, where the vapor barrier sleeping bag liners really shine is when you're worried about your uh, perspiration uh, collecting inside the bag and ruining your down insulation over many many nights when the bag doesn't have an opportunity to vent during the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, picture like a long transarctic expedition where you know you're breaking camp first thing in the morning, stuffing your sleeping bag into a tiny little sack, hitting the trail for ten hours, and setting up camp again. That's a situation where you'll get that moisture build up. The trips that we're doing, these you know shorter duration, four night, five night, uh, and usually kind of 
hub and spoke climbs where we're going into a base camp and, and climbing out of there for the most part. Uh, the bags have a chance to air out during the day. So as far as the vapor barrier miner, uh, we don't see much of a utility for those. Okay. Uh, and then as far as the sleeping pads, um, that's one that I think a lot of people, it's easy to overlook. Uh, if you look at any of the reputable manufacturers for sleeping pads, uh, they'll all have an R rating, you know, just like the insulation for your house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a system that gets me to, I think it's about R8, if I recall correctly. Uh, I use one closed cell foam pad, uh, and then I put an inflatable on top of it. Uh, and between the two of them, I got about R8, I think. Uh, it's critical to combat the heat loss to the snow through the sleeping bag, which you've compressed with your body weight, lost all that ball. Right. Uh, there's two reasons for that. One, just to keep you warm. Uh, and second, to stop your body from melting all the snow that's underneath the tent and having to wake up in a, in a wet hole at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> that doesn't sound fun. No, it's not pleasant. Yeah, well, so I was looking through your list. I, I got a real education going through the kind of equipment guide that you had. And um, maybe, Mark, I'll take this one to you. Uh, it sounds like ski poles are a must, snowshoes, crampons, ice, ice axes. Um, are those all must-haves? And, you know, did, did, I guess most of your beginners probably have to rent equipment from you. Is that true? Uh, well, we, we don't rent equipment, but we do sort of keep an updated list of where um, – where people can rent stuff from in the Northeast. Um, ski poles are an optional item in our, in our uh, gear list. Um, uh, snowshoes required, ice axe required, crampons required. Uh, for backpacking sections, we require a, a, a double boot that has a removable inner liner that you can take out of the boot at nighttime and keep it, uh, keep it dry. Um, for day hiking, we do allow a, a single insulated boot, um, uh, but we don't we don't require ski poles. And, and it's funny, ski poles are sort of a uh, they're an ongoing debate amongst the instructor core. Uh, yeah. There are those that are uh, are rabidly anti ski pole. Huh. Uh, there are those that are rabidly pro ski pole. Um, in the in the final analysis, when it comes to a mountaineering approach, a ski pole is not as useful to you as an ice axe is. Okay. Ice axe uh, is a is a is a real mountaineering tool. Um, I like ski poles when I'm carrying a heavy load on the approach. I have taken to using them less and less frequently um, when I'm actually climbing because I like to have my ice axe handy. Um, that's the mountaineer's tool is the ice axe. Okay. Um, I have I have I have esteemed fellow instructors who uh, who love to carry their ski poles and use them you know most of the way up and most of the way down. But okay. um, but the, the other thing about ski poles that's interesting is that um, they can lead to very cold hands because they tend to keep your hands up higher than your heart, uh, and especially when you're going uphill. Um, so if you're hiking with ski poles in the wintertime and you always have cold hands, put those two facts together and draw your own conclusions. But um, uh, I have found that that to be the case as well, that they tend to lead to people's cold hands. Okay, interesting. I mean, I would have thought that, well, I guess if it's icy, you're going to need an ice axe anyway. So, uh, good yep. point. I'm so yep. used to winter hiking in the south where 
you would rarely need an ice axe and sometimes you're on ice the poles are helpful but you know your situation is entirely different up there in new york for sure yep. Yep. um so aaron i'm gonna hit you with another question here um Tricks to staying warm. Like, you know, one of the things I have done on these cold trips, if it's really, really super cold, and again, laughable to you guys, but I'm talking super cold single digits, right? But um, I'll boil some water, I'll throw it in a hard plastic Nalgene, not a soft plastic, but one of those really hard plastic ones. Throw it in my bag, warm my bag up. You know, it's just kind of nice to get into a warm bag um, and not a cold one. Well, do you guys have any other tricks like that that you use to stay warm? Um, absolutely. It, uh, staying warm starts with your layering system, and I try to um, I try to use uh, a combination of uh, PolyPro and um, some smart wool or different different types of wool blends, um, and that helps out quite a bit. Uh, Mark turned me on to um, the uh, tops that have hoods with them because that's really nice for temperature management. Um, because you can throw that on over your hat, you get all the heat that's coming up from your shoulders up, up to your, uh, and up from your core up to your head, uh, which is really nice. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the uh, new PolyPro and uh, smart wolves are coming out with uh, have hoods. Um, we also encourage the students to um, experiment with vapor barrier socks, or use the multiple bread bag. Um, uh, derivation of the of the vapor barrier socks because what happens is when your when your foot um, is inside your boot your foot ends up sweating mm-hmm. which compromises the insulation layers that are inside your sock and inside your boot. Okay. So if you put a if you put a sock liner on and then you put your vapor barrier sock on your foot sweats up to the point where your where your skin realizes the sweat's going nowhere. And then it kind of stops, hmm. and the vapor barrier keeps it there. Then your uh, boot liner and your sock at night are pretty dry. Interesting. Uh, so I've actually I've actually moved over from um, pretending to use vapor barriers with bread bags to actually purchasing uh, the wrap <laughs> uh, the wrap uh, uh, vapor barrier socks. I used them this year um, quite a bit, and uh, they're really really nice. And you know you don't have to you don't have to worry about drying out your boots nearly as much. Yeah, you're not so pulling my leg. You're not pulling my leg. You're t- you were seriously talking about a bread bag. Like I would pull the bread out of my. Uh... Uh, well, the it's it's best to use the ones that, that don't have any labels on them because when you sweat, it actually transfers into your uh, into your sock. It makes it it makes it very entertaining colors. Wow! Now you're but, not kidding uh, yes, me. We're talking about. You're serious about we're this. We're talking about bread bag. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. That that I never saw coming. I, I did like your suggestion, yeah, by the way, about about spraying zippers with silicon. I thought that was interesting. That was another thing I had never never considered before either. Uh, you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, you know, your your rain your rain jackets and and everything else, your hard shell um, and tent zippers and everything else. Uh, when it gets really really cold out, they don't work. They don't work the way they do when it's warm out. Huh. So when you get down below, below, you know, below zero, below ten, below, uh, things get stuck quite, quite, uh, quite a bit. I was actually uh, um, up on a, uh, up on uh, one of our climbs, and uh, it was we were having, you know, thirty, forty, fifty mile an hour winds, and I was trying to get my hard shell zipped, and it was uh, quite cold, and uh, got my zipper stuck halfway up. So, uh, you know, 
without the protection of the hard shell, it can get a little bit chilly in those uh, in those uh, kind of situations. Yeah, I never consider that. That that was interesting to read about in your uh, in your pamphlet there. Um, hey, so we were talking about tips. One of the one of the things that that I've done when it's super cold is just take a bottle to pee in in the middle of the night because to get out of the tent is is cold, right? Like super cold. So I mean, is that common for you guys, or do you just man it up and just get out and go outside typically? So I, I'm I'm a man it up kind of person because I don't want the uh, the ramifications of me screwing that uh, whole situation up. Oh uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> yeah, I, if, this is Mark. I, I'm with Aaron on that. I also actually uh, enjoy kind of getting out, checking the weather in the middle of the night, looking at the stars, being yeah. by myself out there for a minute. Uh, it, it actually. Uh, now I, I will say that on my coldest night, which was 30 below. That was a little severe. That trip out uh, in the middle of the night was <laughs> was a little severe. But uh, yeah, I'm with Aaron on that. I, I'm I'm not uh, not in favor of the in our conditions at least not in favor of the pee bottle. I think I, if I was climbing Denali, I might change my mind on that. But yeah, I'm not. Well, I mean, not, a pee not, not on a rope. Not, not on a rope line. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, do you guys? I mean, you guys are leading guided trips, so I would understand if you don't allow alcohol. But I mean, is alcohol permitted on these trips? I'm sure you don't carry much because it would be uh, an overload to your pack. But is it permitted? I guess would be the question. Anything, anything in the back in the back country is um, is is. I'm not going to say not permitted, but it is not on the gear list, and it's not something we we, we encourage at all. Okay, um, I, underst- I, I understand. Have, we that. don't have a policy on it, but it's not a good idea in that kind of in that kind of weather. Now, if, sure, you're on, sure. if you're on the day hiking or the combo trip, and you're coming back to the lodge for dinner, which they have fabulous dinners there at the lodge, um, they actually serve beer there. So, you know, that's, well, well, that, that's well, absolutely allowed. And I think you guys will all agree it's not going to make you warmer, right? So, not at all. No. Right. No, it won't. So, Rich, we, we haven't come to you for a second. Any other gear situations people don't often consider that they should keep in mind when they're uh, out there? Um, I think the one that uh, the, the one fulfillment problem that uh, I see most often at our gear check that kind of kicks off every program where we go through each student's gear item by item and make sure that it's appropriate for the trip. Uh, I think the one that trips most people up is uh, full-size zip insulating pants. Uh, they're not on the rack of every retail shop across the country, so people aren't used to seeing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're kind of not on people's mind. They don't have a good mental picture of what these things are, uh, but they're absolutely critical to staying safe and happy when the temperatures really drop and you're standing around camp. Uh, there's not many companies that make them, and it's really easy to screw up. But man, they are great. You get a good pair. Now, are you, are you talking about the, the the pants that have zippers literally all the way up the side of the leg? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's the ones that when you undo the zipper all the way, it turns into the confoundingly confusing butterfly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I got a pair. That's why I was asking. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know it, it's going to be similar to your puppy jacket have like three quarters of an inch or an inch of loft that are synthetic or down and like that really kind of wispy light nylon covering over it uh like quilted almost and uh the point of that is so that uh you know 
at the end of the day of hiking, you built up all of this heat inside of your body, and you don't want to throw it away. So as soon as we stop, we try to stop dry, and puppy things go on immediately. Retain that heat that you built. Uh, and obviously, everybody thinks of their puppy coat, but then the whole bottom half of those puppy pants. Now with these full side zips, I can put them on, you know, without taking my big mountaineering boots off, without taking my snowshoes off. Bang, they're on, and I'm saving that heat. Well, you're making me feel better, Rich, about my purchase because I have a pair of those pants. But I, I rarely need them in the South, but I do have them. So for what that's worth. Um, so, guys, let me let me just do a few final questions here to kind of wrap things up. I was sort of hoping that we would uh, be able to have this conversation earlier, but we had to get four people together, which wasn't easy. Um, I, we did our Klondike hike here actually uh, last weekend, and it was uh, it was so warm and so rainy. We ended up going south just to get away from the rain. But um, but anyway. Uh, so tell us a little bit about where the listeners can go, and uh, maybe I'll come back to you, Mark, just for um, you know your website, uh, some of the things you have on your website. I was looking at your student handbook, also your winter backpacking checklist. I, I found both of those very well written, super informative. You want to just talk about some of the uh, places that listeners can go and get more information? Yeah, well, they can they can find us on Facebook. Uh, we have a we have a, a presence on Facebook. And our website is www.winterschool, all one word, .org. And uh, it's, it's a pretty useful website. You can see some pictures of past programs and uh, people playing in the snow. Um, and uh, there's also uh, quite a bit of stuff posted on our Facebook page uh, from current and past students. And uh, we keep that page kind of kind of pretty busy with articles and other stuff that we come across on the internet, uh, search and rescue stories and things like that that we think are germane and appropriate for the, for the students. But the, the <laughs> primary place to communicate with us is through our website, which is, I'll say it one more time, nice and slow, www.winterschool.org. And there's actually a way to send us an email and ask us about the program. Or ask us about uh, technical gear questions. We do uh, field a, a fair number of those in season when we're dealing with students, um, trying to help them get their uh, kit together. It, uh, that's, it, it, that's the best way to communicate with us and to learn about the program and to see when the, the dates for next year, which actually I know I can tell you what the dates for next year are for our school. Maybe you'll come join us, Steve. Yeah, well, I was thinking this is, it's intriguing, I have to say. <laughs> I, I got to get my fat ass in shape first. I got to tell you that, but uh, <laughs> you need um, to bring your uh, your Klondike friends. So, so next year's school will be uh, will begin Thursday, uh, January thirty first, and run through February sixth. That's the week long program. So the weekend programs run Thursday, January thirty first through Sunday the third and the week-long combo sections, and if we're doing an advanced section, they'll run Thursday, January 31st through Wednesday, February 6th. Okay. And, um, and a lot of the resources on your website are free. That's fair to say, correct? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, no. Everything on the website is free. There's, there's, a, there's a, like you said, there's a great uh, sort of gear list and a student handbook. Anybody can download those. Anybody can ask us questions. We're 
we're, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll try and talk you into coming to the school. Just, just know that up front. But, uh, yeah. but and the gear checklist, I still, I still use that thing, man. Um, you know, that still is, is a, a useful working document for me, uh, to make sure that I got it all because, uh, it's easy to overlook something. And I, I think that's something that, um, your average everyday hiker could come up with for themselves in terms of, uh, you know, their three season gear checklist and their winter gear checklist and their canoe trip checklist and et cetera, et cetera, because it's, it's a useful thing to have. It just helps you go through and make sure you didn't overlook anything. Yeah, you definitely have to pack differently for different situations. Rich, let me come back to you with a question that sort of occurred to me. Yeah, I'm sitting here talking to three guys. Um, I'm just curious, what, what percentage of uh, your students are women on these trips? Um, well, in our instructor pool, uh, we certainly do have a fair number of women. I'd say 25% maybe of the okay. instructors are women. Okay. Uh, That's coming up. This, yeah, and uh, and as far yeah. as the students go, um, I'd say it's probably pretty close to thirty percent or higher. Um, it uh, yeah, and, and it's been creeping up uh, just you know casually. I don't know the numbers in front of me, uh, but just casually observing over the, the the last you know four or five years or whatever I've been involved with winter school. Uh, there's definitely yeah. a stronger female presence year over year. And is is there an all all female class, or I mean, do you, it's pretty much there is no all female class. Generally, no. We don't uh, sex segregate in that way. Uh, although we do try to, you know, accommodate and techmate as as much as is practical or preferred you know, for the students. Uh, okay. And uh, and just this last year, one of our veteran instructors gave an excellent presentation on uh, kind of women's issues in the backcountry and you know how uh, you know to uh, it just addressed a, a whole gamut of issues from um, you know from the practical to the operational to the uh, kind of the the, the, the day to day. Uh, it was really a fantastic pre uh, presentation to Karen. Yeah, okay, yeah. interesting. That, that's sort of why I was asking the question, because obviously, you know, there are some topics that are specifically men don't deal with, right? So um, that's interesting to hear. Are there any, and maybe I'll come back to you, Aaron, uh, any other resources you guys want to recommend before we uh, wrap up? Well, the, the AMC Mountain Leadership uh, uh, Program is something that... Um, uh, people might want to look up. It's a really great program that the AMC runs, and as uh, Mark said, uh, we do have a lot of uh, cross-pollination between our instructor pools, um, between those two programs, and that's a great way of uh, getting out to see the whites and uh, also to really increase your um, your ability to help, uh, help with group dynamics and lead trips. Yeah. Okay, cool. Can sure. I just throw in, Aaron, I, the other thing I would say is if, if people are aspiring uh, mountaineers and, and they, they want a, a sort of um, textbook for Mountaineering 101, I would highly recommend The Freedom of the Hills by the Seattle Mountaineers. It's, it's I don't know, well, edition now. I'm, i got to look on my bookshelf here. I have two editions. 
the second one I have is the sixth edition. I think they're up to like tenth now. And the first one I have is like the third edition. It is, it's the seminal textbook. It covers trip planning and nutritional needs and navigation and gives you a primer and, you know, ice axe and crampon use. And it talks about rock climbing hold. I mean, it's, it's like Mountaineering 101. And if people aren't familiar with it, they should be. It should be on every aspiring Mountaineer's bookshelf, I think, because it's a, it's a fabulous, fabulous resource. You know. Well, and you, you just you just made me think of a question. So you guys are not necessarily mm-hmm. just teaching mountaineering. You're also teaching winter techniques, right? So you wouldn't necessarily have to be an aspiring mountaineer to benefit from your school. Is that is that fair to say? Or, or do most we definitely of the... teach. We definitely teach uh, the. We definitely teach winter camping techniques. We teach uh, uh, transferable skills for for a three season backpacker even. Um, that would definitely that would definitely help them, but the uh, you know our focus is definitely on the um, basics of uh, mountaineering. Okay, so so let me ask the question a different way. If somebody has no intentions of ever climbing Kilimanjaro or Everest or Rainier, you still want them. Is 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 I guess really what I'm asking. You would oh, you would still you can, okay. The te- the text the techniques you learn in in our school can take you into the into the Smokies, can take you into the Green Mountains in Vermont, can take you into the White Mountains in New Hampshire, uh, can take you out west, uh, but can also just simply improve a uh, winter camping trip that you might be doing uh, where you have where you do have a, a, a good snow load. Okay, great. Well, that, that's good to point out. I just wanted to make sure the listeners were clear on that. So, Well, guys, I really appreciate your time. I think uh, I learned a lot. I got to tell you, especially living here in the South, I don't, uh, I don't get the experiences you guys get. Uh, so th- it was, it was fun talking to you. Absolutely. Well, you should come no. up and join us next year. I've never That's done the Adirondacks. Adirondacks. I might, I might have to take you up on that. So uh, yeah, well, guys, yeah, come on up. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You're in Myrtle Beach, right? There you go. <laughs> wow, what a contrast going from Myrtle Beach to to, to the winter trips. But, uh, but hey, thanks so much, guys, and, um, you know, I hope I have a chance to meet you someday. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks for having us, Steve. Absolutely. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Into Backpacking Podcast. This is your host, Bird Shooter, wishing you the best for your travels on the trail. To subscribe to this show, visit iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app, and give us a thumbs up or a positive comment while you're there. You can also download shows directly from intobackpacking.com. Just click the podcast tab on the main menu. Music for this show was provided by Jarrus under a Creative Commons license and is titled Hillbilly Anarchy. This show is a production of Into Backpacking and is copyrighted by Into Ventures Inc. For more information on this podcast or to provide feedback or comments on this or future shows, please visit us at intobackpacking.com. That's the letter N, the number two, backpacking.com.